If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to be focusing on verse 8 in Matthew 5. But as Adam has been doing for the last few weeks, I'd like to read the whole uh, section with you. So if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then our verse for today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Let's listen to it. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, we need your spirit here this morning. We need him to come into this place to take the words that we've just read and Lord, to apply them to our hearts. We desire, Lord, to be like you. We desire to change into your likeness. But we can only do that through the power and the working of your spirit today. So Lord, will you come? Will you come and minister to us now? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Distraction. Are you someone who's often tempted to be distracted? Do you get distracted from your, think, your thinking, your thought train, or your conversation train easily? I think uh, if, it's, if we're honest, all of us could say yes to that question. Most of us don't consider this as a very positive trait as well. But there are many kinds of distractions. There are Simple, innocent distractions, and there are dangerous distractions. If we own a smartphone, we're all too aware of how much power this little device has over us. Uh, if you've ever thought about how many times the beeps, the pings, and the swoop sounds distract you from what you're doing or from your conversation, you'll know this is true. Sometimes distractions can border on rudeness. Uh, have you ever been interrupted by one of these, uh, in a conversation by one of these sounds from a cell phone? Uh, I have, many times. Um, other kinds of distractions, though, can put us in danger. Uh, distracted driving is one of the most uh, 
dangerous things that happens every year. It involves the many, m most accidents of anything else in, in, this, in this country is distracted driving. These same phone noises, for instance, can tempt us to take our eyes off the road and to put ourselves and others in danger. Well, these are just a couple of little examples of distraction. Distraction is like noise in the mind. It keeps, it keeps us from a single-minded focus. It crowds our minds and our hearts with competing thoughts and motives. These distractions can cause us to veer away from a task, a conversation, or a desired goal. They can obscure our mental eyesight. They can take our eyes off the very road of life. In this beatitude, Jesus is alluding to a kind of spiritual distraction that threatens to obscure our view of God. This kind of distraction turns our eyes in on ourselves rather than on the beauty and the majesty of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 that we've just read, Jesus described the undistracted heart as being pure. He says that an unmixed heart is a pure heart. A pure heart will then be enabled to see God. Jesus told his original audience and us that to have a pure heart was to be blessed and to see God was to be blessed. You see, a pure heart is a necessity for clear spiritual vision. But how do we go from distraction to purity? How do we restore the vision that Jesus instructed his followers to have for him? Well, the secret is found in the blessedness of our relationship with Jesus himself. And it begins with the blessedness of a pure heart. In the Old Testament, ritual cleanliness was required of those who would come into God's presence. If you remember, there were tremendous ceremonial laws involved with purification that the, that the uh, Israelites were required to observe in order to come into God's presence. Jesus is likely alluding to this uh, in, this, in this beatitude when he quotes from Psalm 24, 3 through 5, which says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Well, these verses in Psalm 24 would have been clearly understood by the Jewish listeners in Jesus' audience. You see, purity, cleanliness, cleanliness, or cleanness, was a requirement for being in God's presence. And there were elaborate rules for these rites of purification. To ignore these cleanliness rules could actually put your life in jeopardy. But they also had profound social consequences. To be unclean was to be outside of the community of God and outside of his blessing. Many hearers understood these laws to be impossible, and as a result, they walked away from Jesus' teaching. These listeners understood all too well what was required of them to come into the temple. Some saw this measure as too difficult for them, as they believed they could never be pure. Still others actually believed that they were clean 
and that they perceived that they actually kept the cleanliness laws perfectly. They deceived themselves into thinking that they were already pure and in no need of cleansing. Well, see, both of these groups were badly wrong. As with the other Beatitudes, Jesus turns these laws on their head by extending these purity laws to the matters of the heart. Jesus probably had this in mind in the prophecy of Ezekiel. He probably had the prophecy of Ezekiel in his mind, which promises this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In these verses, God promised to put a pure heart in those who believe and trust in him. He promised to help us pursue purity by sending his spirit. At the same time, Jesus presents his followers with the only way to see God, which is through faith and dependence on him. You know, much of Jesus' ministry was toward the unclean, if you remember, or the defiled person. And in the uh, purification laws, uh, the, the commandment was to separate yourself from these defiled people, from these unclean people. But rather than distancing, distancing himself, Jesus moves toward these people. And by moving in this direction, he was actually reversing the Jewish system of clean and unclean. When Jesus, the only pure one, touched the impure person, he did not become unclean. Rather, the sinner became clean and pure. Jesus' earthly ministry was about restoring the humanity of his people to their original pure condition. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann says this, his miracles were not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. He goes on to say, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded, unquote. God's plan from the beginning was to restore his people through the work of Christ. Jesus worked on earth and now in heaven to rehumanize the dehumanized and to cleanse the impure and unclean. His finished work fulfills the cleanliness laws on our behalf. We are no longer seen as unclean or impure in the eyes of God if we are in Christ. We have been set free from the bonds of impurity and released and empowered to become morally pure in heart. This is how Jesus turned the Jewish purity laws on their heads. But there is another nuance in the New Testament Greek language concerning what is meant by the word pure. There are three words for pure in the New Testament. The word used here is the word katharos. It's used to speak of something pure. It could be used to speak of something pure in a sense of being clean, but its more general usage is of being unmixed with other things. For example, if wine had not been diluted with water, 
It could be described as katharos, that is pure wine. It may not taste good, it might taste like vinegar, but if it's not mixed with, with water or other things, it's considered pure. The thrust of, this is the thrust of his statement here in Matthew 5, that we be unmixed in this purity. It is not a purity of heart in the sense of being perfect in heart, but in the sense of being unmixed with other things. It is single-mindedness. Jesus was single-minded in his mission. Well, the unbeliever has a single-minded heart, doesn't he? He's focused completely on himself. He doesn't understand his relationship, this relationship between purity and blessedness or happiness. The world seeks to live as they desire, apart from the constraints of God's rules. They see these rules and instructions as restrictive and limiting. They can only bring unhappiness to us, these rules and regulations. But as believers, though, we too struggle with our desires, don't we? You know, if we want to get drunk, all we have to do is start drinking until it happens. If we want lots of money, we can work very hard until we receive it. Our desires carry us toward what we ultimately want. The believer's desires should carry them closer to God and to his ways. Before I go any further, though, to remind us as, as believers, our hearts have been purified positionally. Sin is, sin is still at work within us, which pulls us away from God's ways toward the godless ways of the world. We are distracted by evil desires at work in us that cause us to turn away from God's purity. The, God, the, the Bible calls us being double-minded and condemns it in James. He says this in James of the unwise man, that he is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Later in James, those who are double-minded are exalted to draw near to God, exhorted to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In this verse, James links the purity of heart to drawing near to God. God wants us to come to him through the cleansing work of Christ, but he is also saying that he wants our undivided attention. He wants us to become like Christ, single-minded in our devotion to him. You know, a lifetime of work can't remove all the thorns of distraction from our lives. It's the truth. But a consistent walk of repentance and turning to the ways of God is rewarded with a view of God that brings true blessedness, a true happiness. If this beatitude is understood only as a commandment, we will quickly become frustrated. If you can, if you can never be pure enough for God, then you will fail to understand the grace by which he has restored you to purity through the work of the Son. But if you're deceived into thinking that uh, that you're pure enough, that you're a pretty, good, a pretty good person, then you will fail to see God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. and You will only gain a view of your own exalted self. Jesus came to take our impurity and sin on himself, then to die on the cross, taking our punishment. In exchange, he has given us the righteousness and purity that is his. As believers... 
Our hearts have already been redeemed by our Savior. We should now desire the blessedness of seeing him as our true God. But what does this look like? What does it really look like to see God truly? You know, some might think of it this way. When I was uh, a few years back, I was blessed to be able to visit a uh, national park out in California, Yosemite National Park. And it's a beautiful place if you've never been there and, you, and you're able to, I'd suggest to go if you can. Um, the engineers there did a beautiful job designing the road system into this park uh, because it, it magnifies what I'm about to describe. As you're going into this two-lane road entering the park, uh, it winds around through the canyon and, and for a while, and then all of a sudden it comes out in this vista, and very suddenly you turn the corner, and there in front of you is this majestic valley, 3,000-foot granite, granite cliffs on either side. Beautiful, majestic place. And seeing this place as a Christian, you can only say, wow, that's God. God did this. God is a beautiful person. God is a creative person. Uh, how beautiful that is. And in a way, that's seeing a form of who God is. And the beauty of the creation does reveal a vision of God's handiwork to us. But a true vision of God himself must come by faith. Only in the end will our faith become sight. The book of Revelation gives us some idea of what we will see one day as we stand before God in the new heavenly city. And these are, this is when our faith does become sight. This is what we will see according to Revelation. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written, who, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What we will see then is the very glory of God, which emanates from the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. We will have such an exalted view of who God is that we will find ourselves worshiping for all eternity in that place. We will be unable to think of anything else as our minds and hearts are fully captured by the majesty and wonder of our God. We will worship God with a purified, single-minded devotion. This glorious vision will be ours when Jesus comes again to consummate his work. And that time, I tell you, will be truly glorious, and I can't wait for it. But what about now? What about now? What about the in-between state where Jesus has come completed his work, and our continuing need for seeing more of God by becoming pure, as he commands us in this passage. How are we to move from this distracted state, this mixed state in our heart, to a devoted state? How can we be blessed people now in this way? The simple answer is that we need to choose a daily path that takes us towards God and not away from him. In reform circles, we call this path the means of grace. You may have heard that term. In his grace and wisdom, God has provided ways by which we can regularly have our faith in him fortified. 
Historically, we have referred to these ways of strengthening our faith as the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, the preaching and teaching of the word, and the sacraments are not elaborate or fancy methods of giving us what we need to confirm our trust in Christ. To an outside observer, they don't really seem special at all, in fact. After all, they make use of rather common things, such as human speech, bread, wine, and water. But by faith and the work of the Spirit, these common elements are used to do an uncommon work. The confirmation of our trust in Jesus and the strengthening of our wills to flee from sin, seek the path of God, and rest in our view of him in Christ alone. Acts 2.42 tells us that the disciples, Jesus' followers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Note the word here, devoted. It's telling us that these early believers were single-minded in their practice of these means of grace. And they are examples for us to follow as well today. Only by our daily choices to pursue these things will our hearts become more and more purified and will our vision of God become clearer and clearer. You see, God becomes clearer and our hearts become purer as we read, study, treasure, and obey God's word. A pure heart has a deep love of God's word. If you haven't begun a daily reading plan in God's word, I'd encourage you. I know Pastor Adam in the past has promoted uh, reading plans here. Ask him. He'd be happy, more than happy to give you a reading plan to get you in God's word on a daily basis. Let the word of God wash over you and give you a new vision of who God is. You see, God becomes clearer and our hearts purer as we devote ourselves to prayer as well. Well, how's your prayer life? <laughs> Does it need a refresh? I would encourage you to allow the scripture readings to guide you in your prayers. As you read the scriptures, let them guide you in your prayers. One uh, Puritan uh, said this. He said that God's word must be the guide of your desires and the ground of your expectations in prayer. Let me read that again. God's word must be the guide of your desires and the ground of your expectations in prayer. The scriptures give us direction as to how and what to pray. They are essential to understanding and praying within the will of God. Well, God also becomes clearer and our hearts become purer as we participate in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These simple and common observances are used by God to strengthen our faith. The regular observance purifies our hearts by keeping us single-mindedly focused on the things that Jesus himself commanded us to continue observing until he comes again. They are actually visible and tangible ways that God is working in his church. And when we, as participants, uh, observe and participate in these sacraments, by faith, we move closer to God, and our vision of him becomes clearer and clearer. Well, finally, God promises his goodness to those who are, good, who are pure in heart. He says in Psalm 73, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
God's goodness is manifested to those who choose the path of purity and a clear vision of his being. We can expect the very best in this life when we are walking along this path. It certainly doesn't mean that we won't suffer. But our suffering will serve his and our greater good always. God's goodness flows from his own pure heart into, the, into our lives every day. He longs to pour forth his goodness into the lives of his people. He longs for that. By our consistent practice of these means of grace, God is demonstrating his goodness towards us every day. When we are distracted from the things of God, we're tempted to take the path that leads us away from God and from a pure heart. Remember that Jesus has already made us pure by faith in him. Firstly, remember whose you are. You are Jesus' child. You are children of God. Then, learn to repent and turn back to the means of grace for help. We must determine in our wills again and again and again and again to set our minds on the things above and to pursue the ways of God with greater and greater consistency. And actually, our growth occurs in the midst of this daily struggle, this daily and continuing struggle. Our growth will occur. Our prayer should be that we would set our minds like that of Paul who said this, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. To walk this way is to have a pure heart. To take this path is to be obsessed with seeing God. God in his infinite goodness waits for you to gaze upon him with the eyes of faith from a pure heart. And he is truly worthy of our gaze, isn't he? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know in a message like this that we're far from pure. We admit, Lord, that... Uh, our hearts are divided, divided many times. We seek after so many idols, Lord, that sometimes we can lose count. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for having divided hearts. Forgive us for turning towards the things of this world. Lord, help us to turn towards you in the daily path of life. You are pure, you are holy, and your righteousness is available to us through the goodness that you displayed to us on the cross. Lord, help us to turn back to you, even today, and to trust you with these words. And I just pray these things for my brothers and sisters and for myself this day, in Jesus' name.